Welcome to Episode 5 of Critical Care in Emergency Medicine, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 8,000 emergency physicians committed to board certification and democratic group practice. This month's podcast features Dr. David Farsi, Chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Mount Sinai Medical Center, Miami Beach, and Dr. Ashika Jain, Assistant Professor at the SUNY Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. In this episode, they will discuss how to assess fluid responsiveness in your critically ill patient. Good afternoon and welcome to AAM Critical Care Podcast. Today, before we start a new podcast, I have an update on hypothermia for cardiac arrest. And as we discussed during that podcast, there was a study pending publication on the temperature 33 versus 36 Celsius. And as I believed, and the paper showed that it makes no difference at what temperature. So again, Preventing the fever and maintaining the person normal thermic is probably the most important part in those patients. Anyway, today it's a great pleasure that I'm introducing Ashika Jain. Uh, Ashika is a assistant professor, the director of critical care ultrasonography at Kings County Hospital at Sydney Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York, and it's a great pleasure to have her come and join us today to discuss the controversy on CDPs and ultrasonography. It is a pleasure as well. Thank you. So how are you? Everything okay? Everything is wonderful. Things are fantastic as usual. Great. So the reason I wanted to do the podcast is recently in the past five years, or actually we can say 50 years, (laughs) trying to determine the patient volume status has been a wide open debate in the medical literature. And with many river paper of vertical directed therapy, CDP kind of became kind of a gold standard, if we want to say, even though I don't want to use the term gold standard, but it's been kind of what everybody's referred to of a targeted goal for vertical directed therapy. And recently, with multiple papers, from 2008 from the Merrick group, and again 2013, it shows that CVP is actually becoming useless. So, to open the debate, let's start. What do you think of CVP? So, so at the end of the day, we're all trying to figure out how do we best care for our patients, right? And so, we want to know: Do our patients need more fluids? Do they need pressors? Do they need some other intervention? And then, and then we started using pulmonary wedge catheters, except that, you know, a bunch of years ago we decided that, that they were dangerous to do, and so we stopped teaching how to do them, and now it's a self-fulfilled prophecy where many of us who have gone through critical care fellowship have put in a handful of pulmonary catheters, but I don't know how to troubleshoot them if I get into trouble because I've only put in a handful of them. So now we're trying to find substitutes for it, right? And so that's where CVP sort of became really popular as a way of deciding, should my patient get more fluid or something else? And in 2008, when Merrick put out that paper, you know, it seemed like clear evidence. 
Right. So there's, I think, something like 40 papers that he went through in that meta-analysis. At the end of the day, the, the conclusion was you can flip a coin and decide if someone is fluid responsive, and that would be just as good as checking the CVP. Right. Correct. I agree. And just take it one step back for the residents who are listening. The reason we're calculating CVP is we're looking for the volume status. And as we know, the venous return to the right side of the heart should equate cardiac output. That number will show us the oxygen debt or consumption. But if those numbers are not equal, then there's a so-called oxygen debt. And the patient will have to increase either the volume status or give a pressure or an inotropic. So CDP has been this marker to use as the, is the patient volume depleted or volume over, overloaded. And I think, like you stated, Marie's paper just stating that TVP, you can flip a coin and you can guess patient depleted, patient is not depleted. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, so I guess even along those same lines of thought, so what is considered fluid responsive? Right, so it's an increase, you know, if you give someone a bolus of 500 cc fluids and you see an increase in 10 to 15 percent of their stroke volume. And, and we can do that sort of at the bedside, kind of quick and dirty, with a straight leg raise. And that's a great point. So before we enter leg raise, let's talk about CVP and the pulmonary artery wedge pressures that was obtained from pulmonary artery catheters. Those are static, considered static measurements. And then mm-hmm. there's what you just mentioned, what's called a dynamic indices, which are, you know, passive leg raise is a great example of dynamic indices. So if you look at the updated guideline from the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, they've really kind of gone away from static monitoring, but more forward a dynamic monitoring. So sorry to interrupt, but go ahead and tell us a little bit more about passive leg raise. Well, sure. So... The passive leg raise is, is a, a simple maneuver, relatively speaking, as long as your patient is able to have their legs above their head. You know, someone who's sitting in the recumbent position, so their 40, their head is 45 degrees up, and then you switch them so that it's essentially the opposite, where their head is down and their legs are now up at 45 degrees. You can do that easily by either lifting their legs, or if you're if you're in the ICU, then you know you can use the bed to do that for you. And then you should see an increase, you know, 10 to 15 percent of their stroke volume or an increase in their you know, their blood pressure or, or other sort of monitoring method to decide, you know, will fluids actually help my patient here? And that's, like I said, the, the quick and dirty way of, of looking at fluid responsiveness. And for this talk, we're not going to go into the all the type of dynamic indices monitor, uh, the bioimpedance, the, all the other monitor that there is out on the market, because I really want to focus today or talk on the use of ultrasound. I'm, I did a critical care fellowship, but everybody knows that I love ultrasound. If I had the option of going back and doing an ultrasound fellowship, I would. I think that ultrasonography is becoming the fastest growing field in emergency medicine and in critical care. And I think some of the information in a dynamic and in a real time can give us such valuable information. It's becoming, I think, the external stethoscope of the 100 years ago. 
Absolutely. And, and the beauty of the ultrasound is, you know, most of our units now all have an ultrasound machine on the floor. So as soon as someone comes in or someone becomes unstable, you can bring the machine to the patient as opposed to the patient to the machine. And that's sort of become the, the beauty of the ultrasound. And the even better part is I can do it and I can do it again and again as necessary. And it's, it's not invasive. Exactly. And it's non-invasive. It takes essentially no time. So I can give you an example. I had a patient who came to the ICU yesterday morning, hypotensive, tachycardic, febrile, actually it's hypothermic for that matter. And, you know, everyone keeps talking about like get a central line in him, let's get a central line in him. And before they were even setting up to do any of that stuff, we did the bedside echo. I could see exactly what his EF is, what his stroke volume variation is, what his IVC was looking like and what my plan for this patient was while someone was going down the hall to even get the central line to put in for a CVP. So before we can even think about the word CVP, I had all the answers, and I had a plan for that patient. And that's so. For the rest of the talk, I really want to go and focus on some of the techniques that a practitioner can utilize at bedside using ultrasound to kind of estimate volume status. I know there's the IVC measurements, so can you take us through the description on how to do it and then the pros and cons of IVC measurement for volume estimation? Yeah, absolutely. Gladly. And so you're basically starting off with doing a bedside echo is where most of the views are going to come from to get an idea of, of what's happening with fluid status and to see what the heart is doing. And we start with parasternal long, which means that you're using a cardiac probe, it's a small little square probe, with the indicator towards the patient's right shoulder, and the cardiac marker either on the right or the left, and that's always of of debate. So for all intents and purposes, in the emergency world, we tend to keep the probe indicator on the patient's right for all of our studies, essentially. So starting with the indicator aiming towards the patient's right shoulder, probably around the fourth or fifth intercostal space, just alongside the sternum on the left side. A nice long shot of the heart, so it's orientation of the heart, essentially, in its long axis. And that gives us a nice view of what the left ventricle is doing. So you can start to say things like, if a patient is hyperdynamic or hypodynamic, and just sort of get a sense of what's happening with the left ventricle, essentially. And once you've sort of decided that someone might be, let's say, hyperdynamic, the high EF, that starts to paint a picture for you, and it becomes sort of the, the starting point. Right. So let me just summarize it for our resident. The parasternal view is really a view where you're going to see on top of the screen, you're going to have your right ventricular absolute tract, and at the bottom, you'll see your left ventricle and your left atrium, and we'll she means that hyperdynamic is really the heart is really beating faster or stronger than it should. And for comparison, the heart, the left ventricle should kiss each other, kind of a gentle kiss. That's a normal EF. So if it doesn't kiss or it stays open, then as you can say, it's not the appropriate ejection fraction. Or if it's over kissing, uh, it's hyperdynamic. Is that simplify enough? Yeah, absolutely. You're essentially looking to see how the left ventricle is contracting. You know, no, normal EF is, you know, 50 to 60%. That's that's what most of us are doing. So if you have anything more than that, it's 
you know, really squeezing and beating hard, then you might say that someone needs more volume. Okay, perfect. Um, and so from there, you know, so that's parasternal lung is, is the first view to start with. And if you turn your hand 90 degrees from there, then now you get a parasternal short. So you're turning your hand counterclockwise. So now you're aiming at the right hip. And that gives you transverse cuts through the heart. So you'll see the left ventricle as a nice round object in the center of your field. It should be nice and muscular. And then to the top right of it, you'll see a nice crescent-shaped right ventricle. And that's sort of the, the normal orientation. And the idea is this gives you, again, a nice example and a nice view of what the left ventricle is doing. How is it beating? And, and is it hyperdynamic? Are there wall motion abnormalities? And if you look at the top, that's the anterior surface of the heart. Going clockwise around, you go from anterior, lateral, inferior, and septum. And again, like I said, if you stick your finger in the, the middle of that round circle, it should concentrically squeeze around your finger. And again, that if it doesn't, then you might worry about wall motion abnormality. Is, is your patient's shock really coming from cardiogenic shock from the, the MI that they're having or something of that sort? I know for the purposes of this, we're talking about sepsis. So this may not be as useful, but it gives you, again, a, it paints a picture of what, your, of what your patient is doing, what their heart is doing. Well, actually, we're not just talking about sepsis. I think we're just talking oh. about any hypotensive patient. Perfect. With, you know, so I think that's a great description of what you just said, and it's extremely important. Again, for residents, it's easy to come, you evaluate your patient. Now you're, just, you know, it's we're all when we first evaluate: is this patient septic? Is this patient in cardiogenic shock and pulmonary edema or not? The putting the probe on the patient's chest and looking just at those two views, you already have a good idea. I have a hyperdynamic patient versus a in cardiogenic shock and where your first line might be uh, inotropic medication. So I think that's great. So what's your third view? So from here, I actually, you know, again, it's just because you get the one cut doesn't mean that you're done looking at that part of the heart. And so you want to actually scroll through, so to say, the entire heart. So from where you are, you're about mid-chest at around the fourth intercostal space. If you start to slide your hand down towards the left hip in the direction of, you know, the heart, essentially, then it, you get sequential cuts of the heart as you work your way down towards the apex. And it's important to look at the entirety of the left ventricle just so you can, again, see what the, the ventricle is doing. And I apologize just to go back. This is also a great view to compare the right side to the left side. So if your right side was just as big as the left side, then that might make you think about things that are going to cause right heart strain, you know, PEs, severe COPD exacerbations, pulmonary fibrosis, things like that. So now you're at the apex, and now you want the third view is the apical forechamber. And since you're already at the apex, all you have to do is drop the level of your hand and aim the probe back in the direction that you just came from, essentially, and that gives you the apical four view, ideally the apical five view, and that includes the aorta in that picture as well. And this is a great shot to look at. So you, what you should see on the screen is the right side and the left side of the heart next to each other with all four chambers in your view. And you, this way you can compare, again, it gives you a nice comparison of the right side and the left side and see how they're moving. You can also look to see if there's regurgitation, if you put color flow over the valves. 
And so you'll see these two little valves flapping. You'll see one on the right side, one on the left side, right? Mitral valve and tricuspid valve. If you can move your hand ever so slightly more anterior, you can get the left ventricular outflow tract. Again, going back to anatomy, your aorta comes out anteriorly and then kind of takes its turn and goes posteriorly. So at the heart level, if you aim the probe slightly more anterior, you should get the left ventricular outflow tract. And that's where you're going to look for stroke volume variation. So if you take the Doppler and you position it right in the center of the left ventricular outflow tract, it gives you essentially the velocity of flow going past the outflow tract. And the idea being we're sort of conferring that volume and, and velocity can be part of the same conversation. So if you have a lot of velocity and that changes on a beat-to-beat, breath-to-breath moment, then that implies a high variation. And so you can look at the velocities, and if you look at the trend over, you know, a minute or so, and you can look at how they trend with every breath, if you have a variation that's greater than 13% from the, the highest velocity to the lowest velocity, then that implies that someone, again, needs more fluid or has, or has a high stroke volume variation. So in summary, we talked about the major four view. Now we're looking at the heart. And again, you know, I know some people, I can already hear it, some people saying, well, you know what, ultrasound, not every emergency department has an ultrasound. My reply to this is, well, in the next five to ten years, everybody will have an ultrasound. It's a very cheap machine um, compared to a lot of the other machine. And I think it's really time if you were not training residency, it's really time for you to find a course and really de- develop those skills. It will change your, your clinical decision-making. So now let's go ahead and talk about the IDC. Yeah, and that brings us to the fourth view, essentially. Um, so the fourth view is the subcostal or the subxiphoid view. It's, called, it's essentially the same thing, depending on which shop you're in. So subcostal is literally right where your xiphoid process is, right underneath that. And you've got the probe indicator, again, towards the right. And you should be able to see the liver, and then you'll see the the heart just past that. And you should be able to see, this is a great view, again, to see the right side of the heart, since the right side, you're sort of closer to the right side of the heart in this particular view. Um, and you're looking for things like a pericardial effusion, because that could be the source of your hypotension. Um, and once you have once you've identified the pericardium, the anterior and the posterior pericardium, and you know that there's no fluid there, then all you have to do is turn your hand clockwise and aim downwards. So you get a, a linear shot going through the body essentially, and you'll find the IVC going right into the right atrium. And so from there, if you so, go sorry, okay, let, me, let, let me stop you. So repeat that. So I'm holding my probe and the subxiphoid with the pointer. Pointing to the, right. to the right. Yep. And then you turn your hand clockwise. Clockwise. And and aiming down into the body. So my probe indicator is facing the patient's head? Correct. Okay. All right. Okay. And, and you should now have a nice longitudinal view of the IVC as it goes into the right atrium. Okay. And obviously to be careful because the IVC and the aorta are right next to each other, so you always want to confirm that you're looking at the IVC and not the aorta, and you can do that either using Doppler or color to look at the flow characteristics to decide if this is aorta or IVC. 
And if you can see the, the IVC, you'll see the hepatic vein coming into the IVC right before it goes through the diaphragm and into the right atrium. So it's the other confirmatory method of knowing that you have the IVC in your plane. And you want to come back a few centimeters from the diaphragm. You know, the, the closer you are to the diaphragm, the more kickback you're going to get from the right atrium. So that's not the greatest place to check for IVC variation, but just a few centimeters back. And then you can, you know, there's multiple methods. You know, the easiest way to do it is to, is to look at the IVC with M mode. So you, you hit the M mode button on the machine and you, and you can, put the spike of the M mode a few centimeters back from the diaphragm, and then it plots that one area of the ultrasound over time. And so over time, you'll see with, with respiratory variation how the IVC changes. Oh, and I like to talk about the IVC class because for basic people like me, that's what I use. Yeah, and, and it's so it's a great way of knowing what's happening with the right side of the heart, preload essentially, right? So this is what the whole topic is, is, is preload and afterload. So for preload, you can look to see the IVC, how much it collapses. And greater than 50% collapse is thought to be a fluid responsive IVC essentially. There's lots of controversy over absolute numbers of IVC, so an IVC that measures two centimeters versus a centimeter and a half versus one, those absolute numbers don't make a difference because we all have our own anatomical variation, but it's how it changes over time and how much it collapses. Obviously, if you have an IVC that doesn't change at all, then that's, to, that's something to be said. And if you have an IVC that completely collapses, from breath to breath, and that's something to be said. There's a middle ground that's hard um, to make inferences off of, but most of the studies that have come out over the last five, ten years have all sort of agreed that more than 50% collapsibility implies fluid responsiveness or, or implies an underloaded preload. And I'd like to give an example. About three weeks ago, we had this patient that came in was a little bit febrile, 101.2. We did a unsure of the origin is young. Everybody's thinking sepsis. I put the ultrasound probe on him. I look at his IVC. His IVC is not collapsing, not moving at all. So everybody's like, well, does it need fluid? I'm like, that's not absolutely true. We do the cardiac sound and uh, cardiac, a quick cardiac echo and his heart is his section fraction was estimated in the 10 to maybe single digits. So at that time, I said, well, something else is going on. He's not septic uh, or maybe some cardiogenic shock. We started the pitch on, on dobutamine. Maybe 10 minutes later, I repeated the IVC, and now suddenly we have a complete collapse. So just for our audience, you know, if you're looking at the collapse, there's no collapse of the IVC. See, that doesn't mean the patient is not a fluid, unresponsive. Uh, something else is going on. Once you've corrected that something else, go back and reevaluate the volume status. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. And, and you bring a great point up, which is just, you know, you, you do an evaluation and then you intervene on it, then you should always repeat your exam and, and look to see how has my intervention affected the patient. Have I done something good or bad for my patient at that point? And that and that's a great point to emphasize is the beauty of ultrasound is it can be done over and over again. And because it's such an easy bedside, non-invasive procedure, 
it should be repeated over and over again. As I teach all my residents and my attendings, I say, we don't see a patient only once. We always see the patient twice. When we see them and when we dispo them, there's always a repeat exam. Ultrasonography is not should never be a single study. There should always be at least second, third, or fourth study, especially if you're looking at dynamic changes such as volume status. Yeah, absolutely. Can I just go back to the IVC for one sec? Yes, please. Just in terms of how to obtain the IVC views, there's mm-hmm. actually two ways to get there. So one was if you're in the subxiphoid view, except that not it's not always the easiest, especially with our growing epidemic of obesity in our country, that it, it can sometimes be hard to obtain an IVC from the subxiphoid area. The other way to get there is from the right upper quadrant. So similar to where you would go for the right upper quadrant FAST exam, if you move your hand back just a little bit towards the posterior aspect of the, of the chest, you can actually get the IVC from there as well. And sometimes that's easier because now you're, you're only going through liver to get there, and so you have less um, impedance from air, from a gastric bubble, from lungs, things like that. So sometimes coming out to the right upper quadrant is another alternative and you'll see the same thing. You'll see the IVC, and you'll see it going into the right atrium. And then you do the same thing. You bring your M mode down, and you can look at the variation from there. So it's an alternative view to look for IVC, essentially. Great. And with our growing population of morbid obese, it's definitely a great. Or you just taught me something. That's great. <laughs> so looked at the heart. We've looked at the IVC now mentioned earlier as a dynamic method, you mentioned about passive leg raise tests, but one of the issues with passive leg raise tests is we have to have a cardiac output monitor or some sort of monitor. Now, what about using the ultrasound? Absolutely. Again, the, the idea is simply while you're doing some sort of an intervention, you want to know what's happening with the patient. So there's no reason why the ultrasound can't be that way of monitoring. Absolutely. You put a probe on. You can, and the nice thing is you can keep the probe on and, and have a colleague do leg raise part or, or use the bed for that matter. The bed can do it for you. And you can keep the probe on the entire time and watch the heart change in front of you um, and see what's happening to it. You can watch the IVC change in front of you. So it's another great dynamic mode of evaluation. Any new techniques or any new comments out there? I'm not sure about new, but just others. Um, we always talk about, you know, so CVP is one way of looking at fluid status um, and to see what the heart is doing. You know, things like flow track or vigileos or other methods, they're still invasive. It still requires an A-line, but it is at least something that you can use. So if you have an A-line in for your patient anyway because you're looking to see what, because they're hypotensive and they're on pressors, then you can easily add a, a vigile or a flow track onto the onto that line essentially, and it gives you some of the same information. The stroke volume variation can be can be calculated from that as well, and you can make those inferences. Again, it's not perfect. If you have a patient who has a history of AFib, you can't use it, and if there are limitations to it, but it gives you again more data points, so you can put together the picture of what's happening with your patient. I personally think that that plus ultrasound is you know, the ultimate way to go since you have as many data points as possible now. Correct. You know, 
I hear people saying, you know, we shouldn't be using this, we should be using this, we shouldn't be using this. But as an intensivist and an emergency physician who practice critical care in the emergency department, the more knowledge, meaning the more tests and more resource we have, the better we can try to get a picture. So I don't base my data on just one one number or one. I just base my, as much data as possible. Uh, now that I say this, I'd like to go back a little bit talking about IBC in volume patient. And so far, a lot of data has validated that it's extremely sensitive, but mainly on non-intubated patients. And there's been some sort of controversy with intubated patients. Do you want to share? Yeah, sure. So, agreed. There is a lot of controversy over intubated patients. And and so to even take a step further back from there, it's, you know, at the end of the day, we're looking at the IVC and how intrathoracic pressures can affect the IVC as well. And that's sort of where the whole mechanical ventilation controversy comes into play. The higher your PEEP, obviously, the, the higher your preload pressures may seem, right? So, so, of course, if you have someone who's on a PEEP of 5, your IVC measurement may be different than someone who has a PEEP of 10, or if they're on a Draeger and they're on APRV, then, of course, that's going to completely change how your IVC may respond. In, in my personal experience, at the end of the day, it's, it still provides you with some information. Again, the absolute numbers don't really help you, but how it varies um, in a, from respiratory beat to respiratory um, beat, it can actually give you some information. If someone who is fluid underloaded, that IVC will collapse, you know, sort of no matter what. Fluid is fluid. You can't make up that pressure somewhere else, essentially. So in in the cable index, which was one of the, the first ways of sort of quantifying IVC change, it, it talks about inspiratory and expiratory numbers. And so really it doesn't make a difference what number you plug in where. It's just the IVC measurement at its maximum and the IVC measurement at its minimum to give you that variation. Again, it's not perfect on the ventilated patient, and, and I would not use that number as a sole modality to drive my therapy. But again, it, it puts a picture together. If I have a patient with, a, with an IVC that doesn't collapse and a high stroke volume variation with the hyperdynamic EF, then that makes that that's a different picture than someone who has a lot of collapsibility and a high EF, right? So it, it changes where you put your focus on how you're going to treat your patient. Absolutely, absolutely. So in conclusion, I like to recap some of the main points, um, especially for residents. We're saying CDP should be followed in the first six hours, but it's knowing that CVP has lots of limitation, limitation as flip of a coin. So the patient who's severe septic or septic shock, you know, driving the CVP six to eight based on mechanical ventilation is a target, but it's not at all. After six hours, I'm not really sure what CVP means, especially two days after this, I definitely don't know what it means. Ultrasound is the future by giving us an image in front of us and the ability to reevaluate the patient in real time in a non-invasive way. Dynamic indices are preferred over static indices. Dr. Ashoka will provide us 
with some images of the view she discussed today, and you'll be able to go into the blog, into the comments, and actually see those pictures. And I hope you enjoyed our podcast. In conclusion, Dr. Ashka, do you have any final comments or anything? Uh, no, thank you very much for having me. And of course, ultrasound, ultrasound, ultrasound. It's the way that we should be looking at all of our patients. And again, the more you use it, the better you will become at it. So use it often. Well, I want to say thank you very much for taking time of your busy schedule. And it's always a pleasure to speak to you. Agreed. Thank you very much. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. For more information about AAEM, please visit our website, www.aaem.org. While you're there, be sure to check out the AAEM blog, part of AAEM Connect, where you can leave comments and engage in a conversation around the issues discussed in this podcast. Join us again next month as Dr. Farsi will discuss more issues of relevance for emergency physicians.